0: Okay, would you turn again, please, to Romans chapter 12? A number of people have been thanking us for coming down uh, these past Sundays. And uh, as I have said back to many of you, I said it to Blake this morning. It's, it's been our privilege, it really is. We have been really blessed to be here, to be among you, and uh, to listen to your prayers and to hear the depth of so much understanding that so many of you have. Sometimes I feel like a little kid and I feel like, what am I doing up here? They know more, a lot more than I do, it seems. But uh, thank you for the privilege of being here. Uh, we really do appreciate that. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Father, we pray now that as we come to your word that your Holy Spirit would teach us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us the Holy Spirit, uh, the gift of Christ as a result of his work on Calvary. Uh, as, as many have prayed this morning, Lord, all that we have and all that we expect to happen and to be is because of what Christ did for us on calvary let us never forget that as uh, as we uh, live our lives out every day help us to always be walking with christ and be mindful of him and it's in his name we pray amen well the bible tells us that here we have no continuing city but we seek the one to come we're told that the patriarchs were looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is god uh, the Bible is a future-oriented book. It keeps making us think about what's to come. In other words, that we're not just locked into the present. In the Heidelberg Catechism, there's that question. The first question is, what is your only comfort in, in life and death? One of the things it says there is, indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And obviously, they're referring to salvation in all its fullness. The, not only the salvation of the soul, but The salvation of the body, which Jesus promises us constantly that at the last day he will raise us up. And then it goes on to say, therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. And again, eternal life in all of its fullness, in all the biblical descriptions. And makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, Are you living in the light of that reality that this isn't it? It's very important, but. Uh, that you're on a journey, you're on the way some, you're on the way to some place. You're a pilgrim, uh, you're a sojourner, not a wanderer, but you're a sojourner, and that sojourn arrives at eternal life, with all of its biblical fullness and in its entailments in the new heavens and the new earth. Or, do you allow your horizons to be limited by right now, and you get bogged down in this phase of your existence? In other words. It's easy to get bogged down in this broken, fallen, cursed world. Or are you thinking realistically, according to those verses I just mentioned? Well, here's a word for us. If we have fallen into that, I'm stuck in the present and I'm not mindful of all that's coming. And here it is in verse 12. The first phrase, I would say, say it like this. Keep a biblically bright ultimate destiny in Christ outlook. In other words, maintain a Christian optimism. Some of us by nature, we're not optimistic. You know, we're, we're not that way at all. Other people are, but this isn't talking about personalities or your personality type. This is talking about something that you should do uh, with the determination by the Spirit of God. Keep a biblically bright, ultimate destiny in Christ outlook. Uh, the biblical point of view is that we are going someplace, someplace glorious. Um, there's a narrative uh, earlier in this book of Romans. It says we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons. In other words, we've already been adopted, but our adoption, we haven't gotten all of what that means. He goes on to tell us what that is, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved. When you became a Christian, you were placed into a new realm, a realm of hope, saved into that. And that's a vital principle when we realize what a terribly unhappy world this is that we live in. On the other hand, at times the world uh, has a foolish and a baseless optimism. Uh, People just have this attitude, oh, well, things will work out. Well, they don't always work out, not the way we think they should be. A Christian is someone whose life is oriented toward the future, rejoicing in hope, last things. Eschatology is the big word. I've never understood why we have to use those kinds of words and we could just say the doctrine of last things. And everybody that speaks English would know what that means. But eschatology just means the study of last things. Um, Everything is oriented toward the final state when Christ's glory is fully manifested to us. In other words, what we're doing right now, this is not a bridge to nowhere. We're going someplace. We're on the way someplace. And it's going to end in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus says that the narrow gate and the difficult way lead to life, life in all of its fullness. So a Christian is a person who's in waiting. Uh, We're not idling away the hours. We're doing business until he comes, occupying until he comes. We know we're strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Uh, Now, I don't want to make light of the present because we don't do that. We don't make light of the present life that we have. But we know that this is not our final reality. Uh, The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about, he says, we use this world, but we don't overuse this world because he says the form of this world is passing away. Uh, The NIV says we're not engrossed in the things of the present. In other words, The point is, is that as we live our lives here, we're not like the world. The world is trying to wring out every bit of juice they can out of this life. And they use expressions like bucket list. I don't understand how a Christian can have a bucket list. We don't need one. We have forever and ever and ever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. And do you think it's going to be an impoverished existence compared to this? You know, we used to go to Paris on a regular basis. Paris, Maine, uh, (laughs) when we lived in Western Maine. And we would have people in the congregation. You guys just did that, didn't you? That would go to Paris. But I always thought, well, that's nice. It's not against that. That's a good thing. But if I never go there, I've got the new heavens and the new earth. So we don't try to we don't try to get everything we can get out of this life. We don't have to. Uh, One time I was going to speak in a chapel at a Christian school in Western Maine. And one of the teenagers called me to get some things about me. And he said, what's your favorite verse? I don't have one. I don't see how you can do that. It's a big, fat book. I, I don't have one. But, but, what I, but what does happen to me is from time to time, a certain verse will mean a lot more to me at that period of my life. And one that has been a kind of a constant, it's been coming back often, is this. <clears throat> Peter talks about girding up the loins of your mind, being sober. But then he says this. He says, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest your hope fully on that, he says. It's a case where you can put your eggs all in one basket, and it's safe to do so. Okay, what is this biblical concept of hope? What does he mean by hope? Well, it's not mere wishful thinking. You've heard that many times if you've been a Christian for a long time. You know it's not mere wishful thinking as in, well, I hope in three weeks. You might be saying, I have a vacation. I hope it's good weather. That's a hope so type thing. There's no guarantee. You're just hoping that it will be that way. Or there's unrealistic kinds of hope that people have. Like, for example, if I were to say, I hope in April of next year I can win the Boston Marathon. That's just a foolish hope, in my case, anyway. Or I I hope that I can reach the summit of Mount Everest. That's just a foolish kind of hope. It's a a foolish optimism. It's a a whistling in the dark type of thing, where you pretend things are are well, but they're really quite scary and quite bad. Uh, It's like pretending that despite the fact that you've been given... um, A death sentence by the doctor. It's like pretending that, oh, all is well. Maybe I'll get better when the doctor says no. It's uh, not a dreamy, Pollyannish kind of hope where you kind of hope like some people, they'll talk sometimes and they're just kind of hoping that a better life will fall into their lap. They don't intend to do anything or they, they, they want a better job and they just hope it will float their way. Sometimes that does happen, but most of the time that's not the way God works in this world. Uh, someone pointed out to me, I think it was my son, who's preaching today, by the way, and uh, he's filling in, in in Calvary Baptist and Brewer, so we can throw up a quick prayer for him right now, uh, but then pay attention to me again. Um, but he mentioned to me, he's been watching these online, and he mentioned to me, he says, hey, you throw at least one baseball uh, illustration in every week and I didn't remember last week's. but then he told me what it was. I said oh yeah I did didn't I? Well here's another one. Have you seen those rally caps? Those stupid rally caps that people wear when their team is behind by 10 runs in the last inning and they'll turn their hat wrong side out and put it on? Like that's going to do something. <laughs> that doesn't have any effect at all. That's a foolish kind of hope. Uh, so people will say this. They say well it all balances out in the end. You know, they'll say that about I just thought of a baseball illustration. Some guy, he first three times up, he rips line drives and they're all caught. Then the last time he's up, he hits a dribbler down the third baseline, beats it out for a base hit. He barely touched the ball. And they say, well, it all evens out in the end. Well, even in that statement, it doesn't because that's one for four. It didn't even out. But those kinds of things are foolish optimism. Okay, what is biblical hope? It has to do with trusting and relying on the revealed word of God. It's based on something really solid. It's based on what God has promised us and the God who cannot lie, the God who cannot fail. In other words, it's a solid foundation. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 31:24. He says, be strong and let your heart take courage. All of you who wait for the Lord, the word wait, there is a word which means to eagerly expect something to happen because God has promised it. I added that last part. It doesn't, doesn't mean because God has promised it, but it has the idea of hoping for something expect, expectantly. Uh, Psalm 43, 5. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? This is a good kind of talking to yourself, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones points out. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you uh, in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God, substance, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. Just look ahead in your Bible to chapter 15 here in Romans and look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And we need hope. Because life is hard. And again, if if you live long enough, you are going to have troubles, big problems. And the biggest one is still ahead of you. You're going to get sick and you're going to die eventually. We need hope. So what is specifically the Christian hope? When he says rejoicing in hope here, what's he talking about? Well, again, it's not a call to play make-believe. About this world, like everything's rosy, and there are a lot of good things I can appreciate in part uh, the old Louis Armstrong song, A Wonderful World, when he says, and I sing to my, think to myself, what a wonderful world. Well, it is in a lot of ways, obviously. But if that's all we have, this, this world, when we say this world is rosy, all is blissful, that's a pathetic approach to life. The Bible tells us that Christ himself is our hope. First Timothy one one. Christ our hope. And all the things that are related to him. If you're, you have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ this morning, Christ, your hope, means things like this. It means you're looking for the, the blessed hope, his return, and all what that's going to mean. The judgment's going to come. And, of course, it means lots of good things for us. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're told that when he returns, this body of humility that we have right now, and if you don't think it's a body of humility, just if you're like I'm, almost 67, go back and look at your teen years. You're living in a body of humility. You're not cute. You're not cute and pretty anymore like you used to be. Well, some of you are, but most of us aren't. Uh, uh, again, we just had a. Uh, where I went to high school up in Corinth, they have a every year now, they have a at the last Saturday of every July, they have a, a East Corinth Academy Central High School reunion. So anybody can come from any class and you spend a lot of your time trying not to gasp people that you haven't seen for 50 years. And you see them and think that's you really, and you know, you want to say, what happened to you? But then you know what happened because it's happening to you, too. But anyway, it says when he returns, he'll transfer transform these bodies of humility into bodies of glory that will be conformed to his body of glory. I'm looking forward to that. And if you're a young person, you look around, you see older people. They've gone through lots of losses, and they're going through losses physically, things that they, uh, they just can't do anymore, the, the things that are stopping. You start losing your hearing. You start going blind. You can't remember words. Uh, You say, what is that word I want? The. It it gets to be that bad. The resurrection of the body, that's a big one. Uh, When we go to funerals where there's a loved one or a dear friend who's a believer, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We sorrow, but we have hope that all is well. They're now in the presence of Christ, and we have the hope of Jesus returning and raising us up from the dead. We have the hope of a new creation. Beyond what we can imagine, there'll be lots of things. It's going to be, you know, I, I like to tell people your eternal destiny, your, your eternal existence, if you're a Christian, is going to be on this planet. It's just going to be fantastically renewed, melted down, as Peter says. But he says, despite all that, we look, we look forward, we anticipate a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Um, it's not seen, but we persevere with hope. We were told earlier in this book. Now, Paul tells us in this verse, it's in this realm of hope that we're living in now, anticipating all these good things. That's our ultimate source of rejoicing, rejoicing in hope. Everything else will leave you empty. Frustrated, deeply disappointed and disillusioned. If you rest your hope fully in something other than Christ and what he's done and what he's promised to bring to us. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who became a believer in his early 20s, but before that, he, his testimony is that he was empty. And he said he was always looking forward to the next thing to do to find that fulfillment. And he said he had this great desire to buy this big stereo system. And he bought it and he was all excited about it. But he said in a couple of days he was just empty. You put your hope in anything. And it's going to let you down. It's going to disappoint you. You're going to find that you're living life under the sun. And it's a broken world. It's a curse world. And our world around us is a living laboratory. We get to look at it every day. We get to see what people are like. We're living without the hope of Christ. You can deceive yourself for a while. I realize there are people out there that are deluded and they, they seem happy. But when they go to bed at night, we don't know their thoughts. That's when our thoughts begin to gather. And if you're not setting your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's going to let you down. What's your basis for hope this morning? What are you rejoicing in? What brings you ultimate joy? I'm not talking about the good things God gives us, but let me take those good things and ask you, are you putting your hope in those things? For example, do you have a good marriage? Is that all your hope and is that all your rejoicing? Well, you know what? Your spouse is going to die. Or maybe you're going to die before your spouse. So you can't, that can't be the ultimate source. Or your family, your house, your home, your trim gardens, your lawns mown all nicely. We know what houses are like. You leave, them alone for a, leave your house alone for a few weeks and it will turn into a wilderness very quickly. Work. Some people make their work their thing. They hide, they crowd out everything else in their work. But that will end. A lot of people are very patriotic, and I'm not against patriotism. But for a lot of people, America is the great hope for them. It's a poor hope. Put your hope in any country. I served in the military. I feel like I have a right to say that. Because people say, oh, he must be a communist if he says that. He doesn't believe in America. I didn't say that. Projects, pursuits, travel, money. Money. Material things. You know, the book of Proverbs says that money has a tendency to sprout wings and fly away. Proverbs 23, 5. First Timothy 6:17 says this. As for the rich, and that's just about everybody in this room compared to the rest of the world. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to get their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't you love the balance of that verse? It says, God gives you lots of things. He gives you friends, he gives you people, he gives you family, he gives you material things. He says, he gives you those things to feel guilty about. No, to richly enjoy those things. But he says, don't put your hope in those things because they're uncertain. Don't put your hope in physical things. But for us, who are believers, no matter how dark the present may be, and you know, it could be, I hate to tell you this. I hate to say this. You probably don't want to think about it. I don't like thinking about it either. But it could be that your darkest days are ahead of you. Your best days are for sure ahead of you if you're a Christian. But it may be your worst days. You, I don't know. I don't know about me. I don't. Am I, am I going to die of a terrible disease that's going to drag out? Am I going to get killed in a car? I don't know. But no matter how dark the present may be, and it may be, The Bible tells us that indescribably good and pleasant and eternal things are ahead of us. And they're never going to end. There'll never be another bad day. There'll never be a day where you have something that's nagging you in the back of your mind. Something that's been a downer. Never. No such hope for the unbeliever. You know, for the unbelievers, think about this. Someone prayed this morning about evangelism, about the urgency of evangelism. Um, Think about this. There's no hope in hell. There's no hope. There's never any hope. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, according to Revelation. No hope. Try to put yourself in that picture and then appreciate the salvation that's been brought to you by Christ. Rejoicing in hope. John Murray says the believer must never have his horizon bounded by what is seen and temporal. And we're all pulled toward the temporal. Don't let it be bound by that. I think of it this way, an infinitesimally small percentage of my existence is going to be in this present age. And the vast majority of it is going to be in the new heavens and new earth and the presence of Christ and the presence of glorified beings and angels by far. It puts it in perspective. So if you're a Christian this morning and you've kind of gotten into the, 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 uh, the mire of, well, what's the use? Everything seems to blow up in my face or... I know this is going to go bad. If you have that kind of outlook and you're not thinking about eternal things, that's an improper attitude for the Christian when you know you're headed for the new creation. The old hymn says, I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. And all the promises of God will find their fulfillment in Christ. So then, we're told in the next phrase here that we're to bear up under the pressures of the present life. They're connected logically, right? Rejoicing or rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. So that brings us back to the present reality. So if you thought he's talking pie in the sky by and by, no, we're still living in, as they say, the nasty now and now. And the present reality oftentimes is difficult. I've heard people say before, if you're having any problems right now, and I'm thinking, what world are they living in? I mean, is there anybody who would dare to stand up right now and say, I have no problems? My life feels like it's full of problems, and yet I know that it could be a lot worse. You know, just little naggy things happen all the time. We backed out of the garage this morning, started to head off the driveway, and I looked, at the garage door was still up. And I said, I know I pushed the button. I pushed it again. It started to come down, and it went back up. So I got out of the car, went inside, pulled the thing, and pulled it down. Went back out of the car, I just tried it real quick. Yeah, it picked it up, and then I said, okay, now let me close it. Get down a little farther, back up. You know, I said, so, you know, I want to solve this problem in my mind, but I can't do that right now. I've got to get going, you know. Life is full of those things. I've, I've, I'm sure Blake can tell you this, too. I've gone into the pulpit on Sunday mornings lots of times with lots worse things like that, troubling my soul. That's not troubling my soul, by the way. But Christians are realistic. You know, Douglas Moo says in his commentary on Romans, he says the path to the culmination of hope is strewn with tribulations. Paul says we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So the apostle refers to tribulation here. It's the word which means pressure. Life is full of pressure. It's the difficult way that Jesus speaks of same root word. It's the pressured way that we walk as Christians. We're squeezed. Uh, We're oppressed. We're stressed. It's a a world of stress. I'm sure you're under stress right now about something in your life. There's something squeezing you, something weighing you down. That's the kind of world we live in. As Christians, we have distinct pressures that the world doesn't have. Uh, Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. That's a distinct pressure. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you will suffer persecution on some level. Then we have all the common to to all of mankind pressures like sickness and financial troubles, work woes, school people, pressures of temptation, unhappiness sometimes in our local churches. There's a whole counseling industry that exists both in the church and in the world because people... Are troubled and oppressed by afflictions. But he says here that Christians are to deal with these pressures successfully by God's grace. Notice the word he uses. He says patient in tribulation is I hate to I hate to to contradict or not contradict but to say some somebody you know these brilliant scholars that give us these translations that it's a weak translation but it really kind of is because it's Patience has the idea sometimes of just sitting by, grinning and bearing it, doesn't it? Be patient, you know, the grandkids will be going home soon, you know. Stoic resignation, bite the bullet. Now, this is a word which means to bear up under pressure, endurance, perseverance. And, of course, when he says bearing up, he's implying that the pressures of this life don't go away. They stay. They stay. Thank God he gives us respites. But I think that's a better translation there. Uh, Morris puts it like this in his commentary. Patient may give a wrong impression. Paul's word denotes not a passive putting up with things, but an active, steadfast endurance. Now, partly, in, actually, in a big way, the way we bear up under pressure is by remembering the first phrase in this verse. They're connected logically. Right? rejoicing in hope bearing up under tribulation you could almost put a therefore in there because that's the logical idea in other words our pressures come to us in a context what's the context I'm living in a context of hope so I know this I know that one day I know that one day all my troubles are going to come to an end forever and ever bearing up it's not endless pressure So the world, oftentimes, Christians have done it to resort to pills and alcohol and hedonism, hobby, something to make them forget their problems. Or they just live in a state of gloom and sadness and or worse. They do worse things. Put your troubles into context. Paul said earlier in this book, he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to. With the glory that will be revealed in us. It's, he's, he's using that word there that brings up, conjures up the picture of scales, the old kind of scales. And he's, on one of them, he says, he puts the, the sufferings of this age, and then he, he puts it on the scales. Oh, they're heavy. They go down. He says, but they're not worthy to be paired to compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. There's no comparison between the two. You might want to flip over just for a second to 2 Corinthians and look at chapter 4, verse 16. This is a, a letter where Paul is going to describe the horrendous trials that he has been going through as an apostle. He does it a couple of times in this letter, chapter six and chapter 11. He tells you all the troubles and tribulations and persecutions that he's been enduring. But look at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light. Momentary affliction calls it light. But, you know, he's going to put that in he's, now these are relative terms. He says it's a light affliction, but it's leading to glory, eternal glory. And he's borrowing the concept from the Old Testament. The word glory in the Old Testament has this idea of something that's really heavy. So light affliction compared to the heavy glory. Um, for this light, of light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal glory beyond all comparison. And again, he's also making a contrast between momentary affliction and eternal glory. We have to keep telling ourselves this; otherwise, our troubles are going to crush us. Say, okay, my 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 troubles are relatively light and they're momentary compared to the glory. So what do you do? Well, 18th verse: As we look, not now. Look means has the idea of staring being obsessed with something we're not obsessed with the things that are seen but we are obsessed with the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal what does bearing up look like under trials well it means simply this if I want to put it negatively um, it means you're not bitter about your life you're not bitter toward God God why are you doing this to me You're grateful instead and everything. Give thanks. It means you're submissive. Uh, You acknowledge that trials are good for you, even though trials themselves, as Peter says, they're painful. They hurt. Right. of Hebrews says the same thing. Can you can you identify with this? The psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 67 before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word now he leaves something out there. He's saying before I was afflicted, I went astray. But because you afflicted me, it woke me up. And so now I'm obeying you. A few verses later, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I find it's very easy, much easier to say that after the trial as opposed to being in the trial. You just have to say, Lord, I know this is good for me ultimately, but boy, I don't like it right now and I wish it would stop. The 75th verse. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's what bearing up looks like. But let me mention one one big thing, too. It also means that in your trials and sometimes trials are chronic. They just never end. They go on and on and on and on. It means if you're really bearing up, if you're being patient in your tribulations, it means that you don't forsake Christ and the gospel, which is very common. Uh, people are fleshed out. They're shown what they really are spiritually. I've seen wrecks through my life down the line, people that you would swear they were really a Christian, but they went out from among us. And John says they went out from among us. Now, we can't read someone's heart perfectly, but he says they never of us because if they'd been of us, uh, they went out. And they went out so that it might be manifested that they were not of us. Jesus puts it like this in the parable of the sore. He says, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. Have you seen that? Someone hears the gospel and they say, I want that. I need to be saved. And they receive it with joy. You think, you know, the tradition I grew up in was once saved, always saved. I do believe that, but not if you put it like that, you know. Uh, they'd say, they look at this person 25 years down the road, has lived a life of a hellion, has forsaken the gospel. They, I know that he was saved. He's locked in. That's not a biblical approach at all. But Jesus says this. These are these people who received the word with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while. And in a time of testing, they fall away. OK, one last thing. What do we need to do? We need to go to the throne of grace regularly, consistently and persistently. That's what he says, right? Back there in Romans. He says, patient in tribulation, being constant or consistent in prayer. That's the whole key. Literally, in prayer, being strong toward. There's a saying people are using now. They're saying he really leaned into that. He's leaning into that. It's one of those trendy sayings again that we use for a while, and we make people think, "Boy, he's really with it." He's using that that saying. But what do they mean by that? When you lean into something, they mean you're really giving yourself to it. That's kind of what he's saying here. He, you're you're leaning into prayer. Now, R.C. Sproul made this expression. Uh, Quite popular Coram Dale living Coram Dale living before the face of God. That's the point here. We're constantly aware we have a Christ consciousness all the time in prayer. We're going to him constantly throughout the day. Uh, Jesus said men ought to pray and not faint. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble term. Very present means he's proved himself. He's proved himself to be a help in times of trouble. Calvin says we must be urgent in prayer and continuously call upon God that he may not allow our hearts to faint and fall to the ground or to be broke by calamities. I know sometimes I have been in the past. I've been discouraged about prayer. First of all, I'm not happy with my prayer life and probably you are not happy with yours either. But if you read some of the histories you hear, like people like Luther, who sang his song this morning, He once made the statement that I can't get anything done during the day unless I give the first two or three hours to prayer. And I hear that and you think, oh, oh," you know, but don't get bogged down by that. You know, super saints praying five, ten. I'm not against that. People can do that. Go ahead and do it. But praying without ceasing doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to anything else. It just means that we are consistent. We're always praying about all things we ask, we seek, we knock. It's Nehemiah type prayer. Do you remember when the king said to Nehemiah, he said, I've never seen you sad like this. What's going on? What can I do for you? And Nehemiah tells us in the first chapter. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He didn't say uh, time out. Uh, He didn't get on his knees. Say, I got to pray about this for now. He just threw a quick one up to God. And that's what we need to do often all day long. A British pastor says patiently endure and bear the various trials you go through. Do not even for a moment lose contact with heaven. So there's our verse today. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now, how can that be? Well, someone alluded to it this morning in the prayer time. Listen to it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And if that's all I know about the age to come, that's enough for me. You take away pain, sorrow, crying, I'm good. So keep rejoicing in hope. Bear up under your tribulations. Stay in touch with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this word in the gospel. Let us, as people with minds being renewed day by day, uh, live according to these principles. Help us, God. We're weak. We need your help day by day, moment by moment. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.